Welcome to this episode of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. So, David, we had the Minister uh, of Labor, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan, uh, as our guest on this podcast. We got him uh, in between uh, a big meeting that's coming up with regard to the recent announcement about the postponement of Bay Nord, which uh, was touted as one of the biggest uh, offshore developments uh, by the government not that long ago. Um, the company that behind that, uh, Equinor, is, uh, decided to postpone development of that by three years. So he went from our podcast into the meeting with, I think, the CEO of that. So it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that meeting. But, you know, uh, we were able to talk to him about a couple of his portfolios. Previously, he was the Minister of Natural Resources, and under his... Um, under his uh, leadership of that department, they created a hydrogen strategy, which uh, I spent some time looking at. I don't know if you did or not, but it's really a it's really a good uh, guideline for the development of hydrogen in Canada. And it was done a couple of years ago, so I think it becomes a blueprint for how we uh, how we move into that uh, new energy uh, uh, field. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's it's incredibly important for the federal government to to set a national agenda around hydrogen, and that's what they've done. And and it 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 it's not as aggressive maybe as the U.S. IRA in terms of hydrogen incentives, but it's it's you know as as the minister said, they're they're trying to meet and compete with the U.S. in, in terms of the development of the hydrogen sector. One of the things that struck me about this interview is is most of the time now when we you read about national politics. It's almost always the personalities of the leaders. So uh, Trudeau and Polyever, and there's just this constant back and forth, and and all this stuff about Chinese interference. You know, there's all of the stuff going on. But what we found out today, and what we confirmed today, is there's some. And what you did when you when you interviewed the minister of IRCC, there's some really good people uh, working on very important files. And um, Minister Reagan is a very competent guy and a very passionate guy. And I think the, the the listeners will 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 benefit from his ideas, his wisdom, and and his thoughts on some of these very important issues, like the development of the hydrogen sector, like addressing uh, skilled trades gaps, uh, and other things that we talk about today. So get beyond the sort of headline politics and try to understand what's going on on the, those big files. And this uh, discussion today will help people do that. Well, I I think that that's right. I mean, I. I like he's obviously passionate about his home province. This shows you the importance of having a strong minister and cabinet representing the interest of uh, of, of their of their province. Uh, you know, Sean Fraser uh, really uh, impressed us as well. A really articulate, uh, smart minister, um, just like Seamus uh, is, and uh, with both, by the way, really good communication skills. <laughs> they don't; those things don't always go together, as you know. But um, a really important there. The other thing that I, I want to sort of highlight, and because we've talked about hydrogen quite a bit on this podcast already, is that there's a big play in this region in hydrogen. We may we may be ahead of almost anybody else. We have a couple of projects in Nova Scotia have already received environmental uh, approvals. You know, Beldoon is looking at uh, creating a, a green energy uh uh, site at their port in New Brunswick. Uh, Newfoundland's got a big uh, project uh, uh, that just got some investment from uh, South Korea, I believe, uh, in the western part of the province. Uh, you know, this is, as the minister said, this is real. You know, you know, he remembers being on a bus at uh, Expo 1986 in Vancouver riding a hydrogen-fueled bus, and, and it seemed like hydrogen was just around the corner. But, you know, a couple of false starts, but this looks like real, real things are happening. Yeah, I think so. I, although I've said to you before on this on this podcast that I would prefer more clarity around hydrogen, but around other forms of energy as well, like demand for energy and so on. So, for example, I think, and we talked about it a bit today, that it looks like there's going to be a demand in certain segments of the transportation sector. So, uh, uh, ship shipping, uh, ocean shipping, long haul trucking, probably aviation, probably trains. Um, but probably not cars. We didn't talk about that today. But so, so I'd really like to understand what the demand for hydrogen is moving forward because every country in the world has a hydrogen strategy, uh, and we're going to be—it's a very going to be a very competitive market, and we just need to see where Canada plays in that space. But 
but yes, I think it, it's an important sector and the minister seems to be very uh, um, um, supportive and, and, and also his very positive comments, by the way, on SMRs. I think the, I really appreciate it. Yeah, that. I'm really encouraged by that too, because you, know, you and I are both uh, supportive of that new technology. We have a very safe nuclear industry in Canada to begin with. This actually is going to make it safer. Um, so uh, encouraged by that. Uh, we talked to him about his current role as Minister of Labour. It's, you know, it's all about workforce development um, uh, right across the country in almost every sector. Uh, not just, you know, he mentioned the energy sector as uh, being a big concern for him in Newfoundland, where uh, oil revenues represent 50% of the government's uh, <laughs> revenue base. So that's pretty big. It's bigger than Alberta for people who may be following these things. But, uh, you know, he talked about uh, the efforts that, that are needed to... Uh, to develop the trades and also to uh, to you know uh, get immigrants to stay in the provinces where they come, so obviously that's a big mandate as well. Yeah, the, the, just a re- re- reiteration of how big the federal government is. Right, there's multiple departments uh, with labor, let's say mandates. Uh, the uh, ESDC, Employment and Social Development Canada, they're the ones, Don, that do the occupational industry projections. And then you've got IRCC, which is trying to bring in skilled immigrants. And then you've got the Department of Labor, which is the Minister O'Regan's uh, department. But there's lots of fingers in the pie there trying to address that problem federally, but also provincially. But here, here, here's one of the challenges that, that I actually challenged the minister on, is that nobody knows what the supply requirements are on a, on a sort of a big number basis. He mentioned that his department's responsible for basically 6% of the labor force in Canada, main, mainly big, big things like rail, marine, um, you know, air and transportation, obviously. But like, uh, I think we need an inventory, just like we do in each of the individual provinces. What are, where are, where are the gaps? What do we need to do to fill those gaps? So, you know, there's a big management planning um, component here that nobody seems to own at, at the national level, right? That's a challenge. Yeah. Now, this week, the IRCC announced that construction workers would be eligible under express entry, which is a quicker way to get into Canada. So that's an incredibly important move. And now we'll see how the provinces respond. But you're absolutely right. We need, uh, I hate to get Marshall on you, Don, but we need an army of construction workers to address these big uh, capital projects, but also to address the housing gaps. So we just need to flood the market with with construction workers and construction trades. Uh, and that's going to take a, just a coordinated effort, federal, provincial, local, uh, and with the unions and industry to make sure we have, otherwise it's just going to be a barrier to the country's growth. Because what happens as, as in the past, they just put off projects. So we'll work on this project this year, and then we'll work on that project next year. And then we'll work on the third project in the third year when all those projects could be done in year one, but you just don't have enough labor. Yeah. So we, we uh, unfortunately didn't get to a, a bunch of questions that uh, we are hoping to. Uh, it was a very engaging uh, conversation with the minister. He's obviously char- charismatic and, uh, and, and he's got a personality that people obviously would... Uh, you know, be attracted to. So uh, without further ado, here's our discussion with the Honourable Seamus O'Regan. We are pleased to have the Honourable Seamus O'Regan, the Minister of Labour on the Insights Podcast. Good to be here, Don. Minister, you've had an interesting career starting in the broadcasting industry before entering politics. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your career path and how you got to uh, became an elected official and then and then ultimately a member of the of the Trudeau uh, cabinet. Uh, boy, uh, yeah, uh, a wayward career path, perhaps. Um, well, I was always uh, I was you know I was a youth parliament kid. I was on the premier's youth advisory council as a teenager. I've always been fairly keen about this sort of stuff, um, and uh, studied political science as my undergraduate, uh, particularly in indigenous politics. That was um, from growing up in Labrador. You kind of you you saw the discrepancy. You know, you think about the '80s, the discrepancy between Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities. And um, so, I for the local MHA, we call him the provincial member. He was the minister responsible for Labrador. Yeah, he was a senior member of the Clyde Wells government. His name was Edward Roberts. I worked for him for three years as his executive assistant. Uh, learned an incredible amount from him because he was formerly executive assistant to Joey Smallwood himself. So it was a, 
brilliant, brilliant man, and he was a great teacher. I went away to Ireland for a year to study what Newfoundland and Labrador could learn from the Celtic Tiger at the time in the mid-90s. I came back. I worked for Brian Tobin as his speechwriter and policy guy for two years when he was premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, and then I went to Cambridge University to study um, indigenous participation and in natural resource development in Canada. So all of that was aligned for pretty much where I am right now. Uh, uh, but then I just had the great good fortune of um, certain stars aligning and uh, me taking a big leap and uh, getting into to journalism uh, and and being on Canada AM for 10 years. Um, which most people who are close to me uh, cannot believe because I, I don't do mornings. <laughs> I'm not a morning person. I can't stand mornings. But anyway, it was a hell of a job, and uh, did that for for ten years. Waking up at four a.m. five days a week for ten years, um, and now so so it was kind of there was a natural progression with this incredible opportunity that I I had um, that I took very very seriously and loved immensely in journalism. Um, and then, you know, with Justin Trudeau, who by that time was a, a very close friend for him to be in the position that he was in, I had to, I just, I couldn't see myself being anywhere else, uh, and, uh, took the big leap, uh, moved, uh, back home, uh, knocked on doors for a year to let people know that I was serious about this. Uh, so I, I was basically campaigning for a year before that 2015 election. Uh, and, you know two years as a backbencher and now I've been in, uh, you know, this will be my fourth cabinet portfolio. It's pretty, pretty fortunate, but yeah, not a, not a regular career path. So I wanted to ask you what motivated you to get into politics, but obviously you had a long history with politics and with the role of the, the public. Uh, so the, the motivation then to get in at that time was the fact that uh, 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 Justin Trudeau uh, asked you to join his team. Yeah, and he, you know, he, I had to win the nomination on my own. Um, uh, you know, I was, you know, he he, he believes you got to you got to want it. You kind of, I would say, you know, not quite left to your own devices, but you have to you have to fend for yourself. Um, but our priorities, and I'd known this for some time, just personally and politically, were were very much aligned. I got into, you know, I got two of my degrees are in Indigenous issues. Uh, that was incredibly. Uh, important to me, um, and you know, economic development um, that was controlled uh, by Indigenous people. That that to me was the vehicle out of what I saw, and uh, and so we relied on that. And and very much look, you can't you know you can't grow up in Newfoundland and Labrador and have fairly strong feelings about uh, natural resource issues and energy issues. I mean, that's you know how it was brought up. I mean, we you know just earlier three days ago in the House of Commons for me to stand to offer up, you know, some of the First Amendments to the Atlantic Accord, or as we just say in Newfoundland and Labrador, the Accord, uh, was, a, was a great honor. And we did that so we, we could include renewables within its jurisdiction. And, you know, for those people who aren't aware, I mean, the Atlantic Accord is, is our agreement with the federal government. Nova Scotia has one as well. Um, you know, comes from the, Mul the Mulroney years, but comes after a Supreme Court decision that said, you know, those offshore resources are within federal jurisdiction. The Atlantic Accord says, yeah, okay, recognize that, but 100% of the royalties as would go to the province as if they were on land, like Alberta or Saskatchewan. And, you know, so for us, it's, a, it's an agreement on prosperity. You touch it very sparingly uh, and with great caution, uh, which we have done, and, uh, and, you know, in complete cooperation and partnership with the province. So, um, you know, you're weaned on this stuff, uh, uh, you know, as a Newfoundlander uh, and a Labradorian. And, um, you know, through various iterations, whether it be Boise Bay and mining, I've had, you know, some hand in it. Um, our first attempt at, uh, at Churchill Falls 2, pre-Muskrat Falls, I was heavily involved in that when I'm in my time with Brian Tobin. So this is, you know, this is where I was schooled. And um, it's a great, it's a great honor to to see some of this come to fruition and, you know, to have been natural resources minister itself as well, to introduce a, a hydrogen plan for Canada that is exploding, you know, both in Nova Scotia and in Newfoundland and Labrador right now. It's, um, it is, uh, it is a privilege. Uh, and that's where we'd like to really start our conversation, um, Seamus, with your previous portfolio as a minister of uh, natural resources. It was during that time that the federal government developed its hydrogen strategy mm -hmm. um, 
tell us uh, tell us a little bit about that because I think that that was a big deal that not many people paid a lot of attention to. No, I mean I'm kind of um, uh, when I when I ran here and people you know knew me primarily as the Canada M guy. I my my line was uh, uh, I'm not here for the show. I'm here to do the job. My I'm very happy if I don't make the news. Um, I'm very happy just to, you know, make sure you get the work done. And if you have to get out and, and get on TV, it's, it's purely to, to make sure that you're selling the work. Um, on the hydrogen plan, yeah, it kind of fell below the radar. I mean, I don't think people's eyes were on it as much, but we took the work very seriously. Uh, I did not want a, a sweeping national plan. If, if you come from a province, you know, uh, in the hinterlands, um, then you, you make sure that, and, and, and when you're schooled in provincial government, then you, I think you want to make sure that you have a national plan that accounts for regional strengths. And um, at that time, uh, you know, I believed in, in, you know, in the hydrogen color scheme, which we don't use as much anymore because it's just distracting. We want people focused on the emissions, not on the source of the hydrogen, but on the emissions profile. Um, you know, green hydrogen was something that I saw for Quebec, uh, particularly, not necessarily for my province. I thought with the, you know, the incredible natural gas uh, resource off, off our shores that is relatively untapped, that it would be blue. Um, blue hydrogen is derived from natural gas uh, and, then, and then carbon capture. And, uh, and certainly, I think that will be how Alberta and Saskatchewan will go just because of the amount of natural gas wealth, because of the infrastructure that already exists there, and because the CC, because the geology there is so, like, probably the best in the world for carbon capture. Um, but I was wrong. It turns out green hydrogen is something that we can do. And, you know, it, it's, it's beyond even testing. If you had told me, that um, you know, I would be standing at Stephenville Airport to see the German Chancellor's plane land with the CEOs of every major company in Germany, like Siemens and Mercedes-Benz, and and they're all getting off the plane and saying, you know, we could invest anywhere in green hydrogen, but we choose this place, and we haven't even built anything yet. Uh, you just say, well, the customer is always right. Um, and what we have now, uh, both I think in, in Newfoundland and in Nova Scotia, uh, is the beginnings of an incredible industry. I mean, Energy NL, which used to be the Newfoundland Offshore Industries Association, but now they embrace everything. They embrace all sources of energy and, and, and how they intermingle. Um, you know, the buzz here is the, the kind of buzz I saw at Voises Bay in, in the mining industry when we found the world's richest nickel find uh, in Labrador, where I grew up. Um, I still have a core sample of the original uh, Voices Bay uh, uh, drill sample. I still have a core uh, on my desk, just as a, a reminder of potential and what you don't know. And I, green hydrogen, you know, we are looking at billions and billions and billions uh, of investment dollars that it, that it's you know putting itself in the window right now for this. And I am watching an industry pivot and. Um, it's, it's an astonishing thing to see. Uh, you know, oil will be with us for some time. Um, probably it won't be combusted at the same level by any means. Um, but as a resource, it will be with us for some time. But, you know, the renewables are getting cheaper. The demand is higher. Our proximity to the European market is so close. Uh, this is very real what is happening right now. And, uh, and it, is, it is really exciting. Well, I, you know, honestly, I, I want to give credit to the federal government to get ahead of this train uh, by putting the strategy together. I, I've reviewed it. It seems to make a lot of sense. I mean, I'm not an expert, but to have at least the strategy in place is a great starting point. Yeah, and I agree. you can see you can see the momentum. Uh, and we're going to talk. David's going to ask you a couple of questions about what's happening in our region. But but there's been a lot of emphasis by your government on the electrification of Canada's transportation sector. That's part of the yeah. the, the report, basically the strategy. I, I want to ask you, what role do you think hydrogen will play in achieving the government's net uh, zero goals by 2050? Well, it's um, it's it's particularly well served in industrial um, 
you know, in, in industrial areas, uh, heavy heavy duty industrial hydrogen can play a real part. Um, in long haul trucking, for instance, uh, it can play where you're going, you know, extraordinarily long distances. I think hydrogen will have a significant play. Um, I don't think we've begun to realize it. Uh, you know, it's like anything else. If if we are able to figure out ways in which um, we can efficiently and cost effectively produce hydrogen in this country, then there will be you know, increasing uh, utilization of it in areas perhaps that we can't even imagine right now. We just know that, um, you know, the upfront capital costs are now, you know, more quickly uh, accepted by people who want to invest in this in this area. And I think that people, you know, it's it's the nice thing about being, I often, so I have a map in, in my office here in, in St. John's and, and in my office in Ottawa, and it's the Newfoundland-centered map of the world. Um, and it just, it, it's just a reminder because when we look at the map of Canada, so often, you know, the East Coast is just kind of like, you know, sometimes they say the arse end, you know, you just kind of see you're far away from the rest of it. But we're right next to Europe. And I mean, you know, the years that I, I went and studied in, in Europe, uh, in the UK, uh, St. John's, we had a regular St. John's uh, flight to Heathrow 767. That was three hours and 55 minutes. And St. John's to Toronto, Toronto was three hours and 30 minutes. So, you know, they are just there and proximity is money and proximity, uh, you know, is closer to customers. So it's just a reminder to, to myself and to people who come to my office and anybody who I can talk to, uh, that you have to align how you see the world. Uh, we, are, we are on the end of a very large, large country, but we are right smack dab, smack dab as far as I'm concerned, in the middle of the G7. And, and we, have to, we have to really think that way. Uh, the Germans do. Um, you know, it is one of the reasons why they have chosen this place uh, as a source of green hydrogen. Uh, so, um, and, and you're, you know, the more, the more tumultuous sometimes the world gets, the more you realize you have to rely on your friends. And, uh, you know, Germany is a friend, a very good friend, and they see us the same way. Um, so, you know, they, the, the demand for hydrogen in Europe will only grow. Uh, this relationship is, will only blossom. The German chancellor does not bring his plane to just anywhere, caring with all the CEOs, the major CEOs of Germany. I mean, we really have to let that sink in. That this is serious. And so we have to respond seriously. Um, I think that that's one of the reasons why the Atlantic Accord amendments are so important. It shows that uh, we are willing to work with the safe harbors that we have created, that investors know and understand. Uh, so, you know, that gives us a leap forward because, uh, you know, especially in this country, jurisdictional issues can, you know, sometimes hold things up. So mm. this, this shows that we're ready for business. Uh, just as a quick aside, we had the uh, president of Michelin North America on recently and he surprised us by saying that one of the things that they're working on are hydrogen fuel cells. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it just shows you how quickly hydrogen has become a big topic, right? Yeah. Um, you know, people are looking at it. They're taking it very seriously. And I think, you know, um, it's also, you know, perhaps for his Michelin employees, but also, I, you know, I'm just thinking of the, of the, of, of the workers that we have here in this province, man. I mean, Guys, when I was natural resources minister, COVID hit. I mean, it was almost simultaneous. Uh, in fact, I was told, and my husband was warned that, um, you know, if you're a natural resources minister in this country, you travel more frequently than the foreign affairs minister. Um, so my husband was quite excited at that, uh, that I'd be on the road so much. And like everybody else in COVID, you know, he'd, we'd wake up and every morning I'd see him looking at me going, ah, you're still here. And yeah, still here, still working, still. Uh, but, uh, you, you know, the, you go around, you sell these resources. Um, you, you, uh, you, you think to yourself, okay, what are, what, what's the issue here? During COVID, my, my biggest concern was losing the labor force, was losing people in this industry. I mean, I, between COVID and an oil price war, I can't. I can't tell you how apocalyptic it felt in this province. Um, it, we were looking at oil rigs, exploratory oil rigs, just going back to Europe. We were looking at, come by chance, the refinery shutting down, West White Rose down, Terranova down, Hibernia cutting back, Hebron cutting back. Um, you know, to, to, to say the time-honored Newfoundland phrase, the arse was out of her. I mean, that's why the mood here was so celebratory, because I reminded everybody of that. Um, 
you know, I brought my, my chief of staff who's, you know, based in Ottawa and, and our whole working period during COVID, he was in Ottawa and I was here. And, you know, I, I said, you got to, I want you to fly in because I want you to meet these people that you've known and <laughs> cried with over the phone and texted. I mean, it was, you know, it was, it was a tremendously distressful time. I mean, look, just putting COVID aside and of course all the distress that people suffer, but, but this, you know, we felt that this was an industry that was falling apart and it is an industry on which this province depends on more than Alberta depends on the oil industry. We depend on it for 50% of our revenues to this province. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was, it was tough. And my biggest concern was we'd lose the labor force because I knew this day would come. Like I, I can't tell you how <laughs> I knew this day will come. And I knew that 25 years ago when I wrote speeches for Brian Tobin during Hibernia first oil, I knew then we didn't have a clue what we were talking about. We didn't know what we were doing, but yet somehow we were doing it. We were building this gravity-based structure and it was happening. And I believe in the workers of this place. And, you know, here we are and hydrogen's happening. I went down to, you know, the West White Rose site in Argentia. Uh, you got to see it to believe it, Gus. But I mean, you know, there's a there's the, the beginnings of, of the, the foundation of a gravity-based structure that had been built. But now, you know, there's a shaft that, you know, is touching the sky that was built in the past 66 days by 1,200 people working 24-7, bringing the cement up to the top by wheelbarrow. I mean, um, I knew that the transition would require workers. We found billions in Alberta and Saskatchewan um, for the Orphan Wells program, just to keep people busy and doing something that we found, you know, would be environmentally sound, taking an orphan in an active wells and decommissioning them. Um, that wasn't, you know, what would we do here? Uh, we found $400 million for the offshore here in Newfoundland to keep people in the workforce on the Terra Nova FPSO. And I'm finding other ways, you know, to lower emissions. That was the thing, support workers and lower emissions. And, uh, and it, it kept, it kept things going. Um, so we didn't lose the workforce. Now, actually, my biggest problem uh, here is uh, labor shortage, like it is across the country. It's particularly acute here. I mean, the day I had the other day, you know, I'm still beaming from it, even though it was the day that Equinor announced that they would be suspending uh, Betanor for up to three years. But, you know, we made amendments to the Atlantic Accord, gave a press conference on that. I, I gave a speech that I had always hoped I would give to Energy NL. Um, again, an industry that has embraced all forms of energy here uh, and embraced renewables with heart and soul. Um, then I go to come by chance with uh, Natural Resource Minister uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, go to come by chance to give $87 million to the refinery. They are recycling diesel and, bring, and building sustainable aviation fuel. 800 people work in there. There'll be 200 people permanently. I mean, you know, I go down to the West White Rose site to see this incredible thing being built. I go to Argentia, right? In, well, it is in Argentia, but right, right alongside it, where, you know, they're taking an old American base, a brownfield site, and they are turning into a place that we will be, you know, uh, putting together wind turbines through the entire eastern seaboard. I mean, that was a good day. And their biggest problem is finding the workforce, because these are all in proximity of one another. Right next to it, of course, is Bull Arm as well, where they're finishing off the Terra Nova floating platform. Um, which had just gone to Spain and has just come back. The workers are on that. Uh, I have a significant skilled labor shortage in this in this province, as we do in the country. And you know, I, I even Monday, I, I was sitting uh, at the Leuna, Leuna, one of the biggest unions in the country for skilled labor, and sitting at their national conference in Montreal. The president up there is complaining about those four specific sites in Newfoundland, and 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 dealing with other you know unions and 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 you know his complaints about the lack of. Uh, skilled labor in Newfoundland, and I was standing in the back of the room just beaming. I mean, um, you know, it's a challenge, don't get me wrong, but it's a challenge that I will take over, you know, growing up what had historically been 20 to 22% unemployment here. Um, yeah. So so workers drive the transition. I always knew that that would be the case, and I knew that they would be more than capable of adapting to something new, because I was there in the beginning. And, you know, I fly from to St. John's, to Toronto, to, to Ottawa, wherever. And I'm always sitting next to some, some young fellow in his 20s and 30s. And how you doing? What are you doing? I'll buy him in the oil industry. Off to Mongolia again. Show him how it's done. Mongolia, Mozambique. You know, these are young Newfoundlanders who have only known 
uh, booming offshore here and have learned the skills of their trade so well uh, that they're sought after all over the world. It's uh, This is good. We've got our challenges. This is good. So we're going to circle back on the labor challenges in a moment, but we did want to f- ask you a couple more questions on hydrogen. Of course, it's a very, very competitive market. There's countries all around the world, US, Brazil, Middle East, everywhere. Everybody's sort of going into hydrogen. So we wanted to ask you what you think the impediments are to the development of hydrogen as an alternate energy uh, source. Um, you know, uh, right now, like anything else, it'll be determined by cost. Um, uh, you know, there are, uh, there are a number of priorities that we have um, as a government. I think um, one of the benefits that we have in Canada is an incredibly, uh, very incredibly clean electrical grid. Um, our electricity is derived, you know, we have a lot of hydro in this country. Um, that is a very, very, you know, it's a non-emitting source of power. And, you know, it's, uh, you, you got to be very careful when you say the word clean, because, you know, a number of hydroelectric projects have obviously involved some environmental um uh, you know, had have had environmental ramifications. There are always ramifications to development. There are always ramifications to energy. Um, uh, if right now, my top priority, and I think we are at that point now in the evolution of of energy in this country and the decisions that we make, that we we have to make we have to establish priorities. My number one priority is lowering emissions. The planet's cooking. We got to do something. And, and, and so with that, that for me is the top priority. And then there are others that will follow like biodiversity and deforestification and, and others. And we will assess all of these things, but we, we're make, we're, we're going to have to make some hard decisions. You know, um, hydrogen is if, if you can, if you can get it right is, is proficient, you know, it's prolific, it's everywhere. Um, uh, you know, technology will lower capital cost, and technology will uh, investment in those technologies will lower capital cost. Um, you know, electrifiers and other things are you know uh, uh, expensive. Um, uh, but I mean, what you're seeing is customers were willing to invest. Um, you know, the the European Union market. I think the Americans are very serious about this, and you know. I think we will all rise with it. Um, but right now, what we have identified chiefly for hydrogen will be, uh, you know, it's going to be a great source. Hydrogen on its own will be a great source for industrial. It will be a great source for long haul transportation. Could be, you know, we could easily see it being used for marine. Uh, you've got a lot of emissions that come from, you know, bunker sea oil and other uh, types of oil that are used uh, in burning marine transportation. Um, and this will, you know, this will be seen as, as cheap and safe uh, as things move along. I've hydrogen. I, you know, I remember being to, to show my age at Expo 86 in Vancouver and driving in a hydrogen bus and hydrogen's just around the corner. Um, and then, you know, coming back in 2010 during the Olympics and Vancouver had hydrogen buses and hydrogen's just around the corner. But you know, this is, this is real now. I mean, this is, you know, Ballard and other companies that are in hydrogen Valley in, in, um, in, in the, um, in, in the Vancouver area, uh, you, you know, what we're, what we're seeing now are customers in demand. Um, some of that, you know, it really shot up after Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, and, and now, you know, you're talking about energy, you're talking about proximity to energy sources. You're talking about, um, you know, safe, secure energy supply and, and hydrogen could provide that, um, the Germans certainly believe it. A lot of people in Europe certainly believe it. Increasingly, countries like um, Japan, South Korea, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, increasingly believe it. Um, I think this is the beginnings. Um, and and you know, if, if finding ways now, as we will, as we are, um, to use wind uh, to to provide the electricity to provide that hydrogen. Um, this is you know, this is incredible. We got lots of wind. Got lots of wind. If, I can, if we can make money off of wind, we're going to be in a very good position. Yeah, and I think, Mister, when the rubber hits the road, when the private sector starts investing, and we saw this week that a South Korean company signed a fifty million dollar deal with the with the proponent of the big uh, green hydrogen project on Newfoundland's west coast. So that's really good to see the private sector. But I noticed in the CBC article that they called it a controversial green hydrogen project. Can you tell us why? Is do you have any thoughts on why it's considered controversial? Well, I mean, I think uh, if you're talking about um, 
and I believe that this one is particularly on land, uh, yeah. then there are just, you know, there are some people who just uh, don't like the look of it or uh, don't want it on land. Um, again, I think this is about establishing priorities. Um, you know, there will always be uh, a consequence, a ramification to actions that we take in creating energy. Um, I am, you know, I'll just start, as an example, I'm very pro-nuclear, always have been. Uh, it doesn't emit. Uh, it's stable and it's secure. Um, the waste is tangible. We handle it well. We have a regulatory regime and, and, and a safety protocol in this country that is actually a competitive advantage. We're so good at it. We're tier one. Um, so, you know, let's just, let's just stop, right? We got to make decisions now. Um, the planet is cooking. Uh, we have to make some, some significant decisions. We, uh, you know, we began our SMR investments and our SMR plan at when I was at natural resources. Um, I think that we've got to think of bitter, you know, bigger and better ways and, and, and greater technologies in, in efficiently and more cheaply building nuclear. But the bottom line is nuclear is, uh, nuclear is safe and, uh, nuclear does not emit. Um, so, you know, we got to take this stuff seriously. Yeah, Don and I agree with you on that 100%. Just one last question on hydrogen. What is the role of the federal government to support these projects? You've got your hydrogen plan, um, but you know the United States government put a very, very lucrative incentive on the table for hydrogen produ production. What is the role in Canada of the federal government to, to help stimulate this sector and make sure we're competitive with the rest of the world? Um, I think, you know, the last budget showed how serious we are. Uh, I think it was, um, you know, more than more than just our kind of our response to the um, Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, kind of uh, obscurely named, but you do whatever you have to do to get it through Congress. But basically, it's the biggest uh, green package and green investment perhaps we've ever seen uh, anywhere. Um, and uh, give the president incredible credit for this. So now we're in a position we've got to keep up. I got to tell you, you know, as somebody who was natural resources minister during the Trump administration, dealing with a, a climate denier as energy secretary in the U.S., this is a good problem to have. Now we have to keep up with an administration that is is demanding that we do more and is putting its its money where its mouth is. Uh, so, you know, we, we knew that we couldn't be left behind. Uh, Christy Freeland believed very strongly in it, as, as did the rest of the government. But, you know, we were, you know, we recognized coming out of COVID that we had to lock down spending. But and and we're very serious about that, but we couldn't, we wouldn't be able to look our children and grandchildren in the eye and say we missed this opportunity. We don't want to be, you know, this this has happened. This is an amazing thing. We got so we have to keep up with the Americans. That is going to mean that we have to get serious about investment. We put six tax credits out there that are worth about you know eighty six billion dollars. Um, investment tax credits, you know, just to remind you. It's, uh, it's not something, you know, the politicians are normally given to because anybody can avail of them. You know, politicians generally like picking winners and, you know, you show up with a check and we cut the ribbon and we get to make a big announcement for a company with money. Investment tax credits kind of happen almost invisibly. You know, I mean, uh, we'll find a reason to celebrate when things are built. Don't get me wrong. Politicians do. But but it is not where we normally go, but it is, but it's, it's what needs to happen. You need to, you know, it needs to be a, a, a significant, deliberate, well thought out, transparent investment tax credit. Um, I am, uh, you know, we all work very hard on this. I'm very particularly happy about this because very much like it's American cousin, um, this the scheme of investment tax credits involves uh, union labor. So you will not be able to fully avail of these investment tax credits uh, on, you know, CCUS, clean tech, everything else, unless you hire a union workforce or pay a prevailing union wage. And that prevailing union wage is determined by unions. So this is huge. We had a significant issue. Anybody, you know, who's on the kind of green renewable side or is in favor just thinks that, you know, everything is sweetness and light and rainbows and unicorns. It isn't always. They, not all of them were paying union wages. In fact, some of them were anti-union. And it was one of the reasons why oil and gas workers were like, don't, don't sell us on this just transition. Like, give me a break. These guys don't pay. You know, stop the moralizing about what you should be doing. Stop talking down to people. If you want to let people know that you're serious about something and that you're serious about them, you will pay them. So that's what this says. You know, you will be paid 
a union wage. We encourage union uh, a union workforce. And you know what? That's not just like the 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 good thing to do because uh, you're pro union, which we are very much as a government. It's a smart thing to do. We've got the most significant labor shortage that the country's ever seen. I mean, it, it's an issue with housing, not just with energy. Uh, so if you want to let people know you're serious, you have to attract them to the job. The money's got to be there. The benefits have to be there. So, you know, this, this is important to get it done. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty damn proud of it, you know? Um, and, and unions are thrilled because now we're talking their language. We want to, uh, just, uh, switch uh, directions here a little bit, uh, Seamus. Uh, one of the challenges faced with, uh, Hydrogen is uh, is finding enough wind power to uh, create green hydrogen. Obviously, we had uh, the CEO of Everwind Fuels on our podcast not that long ago. We're going to have the uh, people from Bear Head as well, and they both in their plans have offshore wind as part of the future. Um, we don't really have any offshore wind farms that I'm aware of at the moment. What, what barriers need to be overcome before offshore wind farms can be developed? Um, I think that we're we're plowing through a lot of them. Uh, some of them are, are regulatory. Uh, and, you know, I always say to people, you know, one person's regulations, another person's red tape, but is another person's regulation. I mean, you know, after uh, an environmental disaster happens or, or some such or a safety issue, we often go, well, you know, what what a government do? Maybe we need tighter regs. So, you know, in times when we don't need them, we call them red tape. And in times when we do, we call them necessary regulation. But you got to be smart about it. And, and you know, one thing that we are driven to do is 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 make sure that wherever we can tighten things up, reduce the red tape. And when I say red tape, I really mean duplicative stuff. Um, you know, we should do that. And, and it's very easy to fall prey in this country because of, the, you know, the multi layers of government. We have strong provinces, as we should, you know, because they know their regions very well and within them, you know, municipalities and then, of course, the federal government. So wherever we can streamline those processes, uh, the quicker we're able to get business done and we're able to get things moving. Um, some things are necessary. Some things are, you know, uh, overlap. And so, um, you know, we've got, I think, provinces that are determined to work with us. Uh, certainly here in Newfoundland and Labrador, I know that they are. And uh, Nova Scotia, I believe, as well. Um, you know, it get rid of those. The Atlantic Accord Amendments is a big help because uh, it's proven. You don't have to build that foundation again. You don't have to build up something new, you know, a new Atlantic Renewables Accord or whatever we may have called it. Um, and and we just expanded the the, the breadth uh, of scope of, of the agencies that work underneath it. They are getting rebranded now. Petroleum is out. Uh, energy regulator is in um, so that they encompass all sources of energy. So I think a lot of it's regs, and I think we're plowing through those regs right now. Well, you know, it leads me nicely into the next question. There have been significant concerns expressed by those working to develop renewable energy projects in the region um, by the, what they consider at least to be the overly onerous and unclear regulatory environment. What needs to be done, in your view, to streamline the approval process? It, it's not just for renewable energy, by the way. We've, we've done some sessions on mining and the process to get a mine approved are years. Uh, yeah. and, and yet we need more mines if we're going to be able to support the net zero by 2050 goal. So there's, there's got to be a lot of work done in that, in that area, don't you think? Absolutely. Um, and, and we continue to learn. Look, I, I, you know, uh, some things have been mischaracterized, by the way, I'll be honest. Uh, you know, the, what we called or what gets thrown to one side is, you know, Bill C-69. I mean, that look, what that did in establishing, um, uh, you know, the, the Impact Assessment Agency of Canada, um, it came from this. Uh, you know, what you happened, I think, during the Harbour years, I'm not being partisan here, but but look, you just have what you had was a, a government that, you know, decided to, if, you know, if it wasn't getting projects built, it just meant it had to do it faster, stronger, better, just plow on. Happening at the same time that, you know, our courts were realizing the very real and existing rights of indigenous people in this country. And so what you had was just, just you know, blow up after blow up. Things didn't get built. Things didn't get built during the Harper years because you just, you had that, well, maybe the answer then if things aren't getting built is just to go faster, stronger, and, and throw things to one side. Well, the court stopped it time and again. So I'm a practical guy. This is the way it is. 
this is the jurisprudence. My dad was a judge, so maybe I'm a little given to it. But, you know, these are facts, right? Um, these are rights that are being realized. And there's no getting around it. I mean, I'm, you know, unless you want to tear up the, the Constitution, uh, there's no getting around it. So this is an attempt to kind of front end load a lot of that consultation process. And we didn't get it right in the beginning. I was on the, the TMX cabinet committee. Um, you know, the Federal Court of Appeal, our first attempts at TMX threw it out. I mean, but, you know, to be fair, like we were still overseeing meaningful consultation in the sense that, you know, if you fax a remote Inuit or uh, First Nation you know, or Inuit community and, and you, you fax them uh, the, the consultation and, and if they don't fax back the boxes checked and sign it, we can only assume that they agree. And then we call that coming in for a consultation. Like, come on, guys, we got to get serious about this. So, you know, we came up with a process that would front end load it, uh, do it well, do it in an established way where the timelines are real and you're not stopping the clock for various reasons. And, and you know, redid it. And it was tested in the Federal Court of Appeal in the past. I mean, I remember that day. For me, it was a seminal day. We worked very hard on it. Uh, it, it, it accepted facts. And the fact is you have to consult with indigenous people. And there are certain environmental issues that obviously we as a country hold dear and we have a reputation for doing so. Um, but having said that, we can be smarter about it. We can find ways to compact those timelines. There are, we can find ways to, you know, to do this better. I think also, you know, I, I think I, here's a perfect example of it. Um, when we when we came in, the Harper government, and it was more just sheerly out of neglect, uh, had taken what uh, we had about a 300 plus day uh, environmental assessment timeline for exploratory wells. So just exploratory wells, just drilling down, see what's down there kind of thing for our offshore. Um, they had increased it to 900 um, because they were basically treating every exploratory well like it was a full on Hibernia. They put them in the same category as an actual full on development which was, you know, completely inaccurate. And um, what we did was we did a regional assessment of the whole basin. So instead of being myopic and just looking at, you know, the area in which you're going to drill and, and, you know, however far out from that, we were looking how whole ecosystems in the basin work together. We did one big regional assessment. We took a year to do it. So that means that when you go in there now and you do an exploratory well, it's 90 days. We moved it from 900 to 90. It is one of the most competitive in the world. Um, I'm very proud of that because here's the thing. If you are smart enough, if you were creative enough, we found a way where it's better for business and better for the environment. Um, because we found ways in, in which how, you know, as I said, all these ecosystems and different species co intermingled or migratory. I mean, you know, I couldn't believe that we had to consult with indigenous people in New Brunswick for exploratory wells that were happening 300 kilometers east of St. John's, so how the frig, like, why are you doing that? Well, because the salmon swim. They swim next to these areas and they swim all the way to New Brunswick. So you gotta consult. So, you know, this is just a smarter way of going about it. You do it all in one fell swoop. And then, and then you know, then you're able to look at, at the particulars afterwards, but the bulk of the work is done and you've done a more extensive environmental assessment. It can be done. Don't tell me it can't be done, it can be done. Um, we yeah. just have to be smart. Yeah, so one, just, one uh, example I wanted to bring up that, that I think is uh, meaningful is that we had the uh, CEO of the BC uh, LNG Alliance on recently, uh, which is, uh, I forget how many um, Indigenous uh, ban, uh, uh, groups or communities are part of that, but 14 or 17, something like that. And they've, they've, they've done kind of the blanket approach to resource development within their you know, their, their communities, their lands. And, you know, I think that that, that, that's a useful model for our region too, I think. And I, I hope that that gets transferred over to our region in some, in some fashion. Yeah. So I, I right, David. yeah, it's a good point, Don. I, I wanted to circle back on the Atlantic Accord minister. Um, of course, your colleague, Jonathan Wilkinson announced those changes recently. Can you tell us a little bit about how that will help uh, the development of energy resources in Atlantic Canada, specifically Newfoundland and Labrador? But I also wanted to ask you uh, about the green elephant in the room, and that is around royalties. So the oil and gas provide tremendous royalties to the provincial government in Newfoundland and Labrador. I understand there is some sort of royalty regime associated with wind. Can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, if there's royalties associated with these wind projects? 
I'm not gonna won't get into royalties. Um, I will let that go by. Uh, but 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 let me let me just talk about uh, the the accord. Um, you know, I, I I Jonathan and I stood in the house. Uh, I was very proud to second it. Um, it's you know as natural resources minister, it's it's within his purview. It's um, uh, as I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's just called the accord around here. Um, the accord, you know, and it's, it's our charter of rights for prosperity. Um, and, and so it's touched with, very, touched very delicately. Uh, I always praise John Crosby back in the day for being a champion of this and getting it done. Um, I have, uh, you know, I have both, um, negotiated a renewal of, uh, of of the terms under the Atlantic Accord, uh, and we and the province of Newfoundland and Labrador received an extra 2.5 billion. I have gone back to the proceeds of the Atlantic Accord uh, to find uh, 5.2 billion for rate mitigation in this province. Um, I am I, there's not a day goes by I am not grateful to John Crosby, um, but this was actually changing and amending the terms to include renewables. So I think its importance clearly is that it is a proven market mechanism. It provides jurisdictional certainty. Um, we we sort it out. It's proven. We've sorted out you know the red tape and such, and the agencies are familiar to investors. So I think that that's what gives us a, a real leg up. Do not you know don't re reinvent the wheel. Um, just make a better wheel. So you're now the Minister of Labor. Can you tell us what your priorities are? You talked a little bit earlier about the the, the, the concerns around uh, trades. And of course, that's a national challenge. We've got a, a lot of demand for trades, uh, specifically for these hydrogen and, and wind energy projects, but for everything else as well, including housing. So what are your priorities at the Department of Labor? Uh, you know, first of all, as you probably guessed from the course of the interview, your priorities are never far, from, never far from your province, regardless of the portfolio that you hold. And I've been, you know, been dealing with this, these issues, even at Indigenous Services and Veterans Affairs. I've been, uh, you know, dealing extensively with uh, the Accord and, and energy issues. But for labor itself, it is, yeah, most certainly it's the skilled labor shortage. Uh, it's a labor shortage all around, but it's skilled labor shortage. Um, it's also just making sure that, you know, uh, I, I I have about uh, 6% of the workforce, 94% of the workforce is, is governed by the labor departments of the various provinces and territories. Um, for me, if you look at it, you know, you're talking about uh, marine, um, long haul trucking is probably my biggest, uh, aviation airports, uh, banking, telecommunications, um, you're, you're, you're talking a lot about supply chains. Rail is big. Rail is big. And very early on in my tenure as a labor minister, I uh, CP Rail, um, we had a strike. We had a work stoppage. Um, I was in Calgary uh, with, with parties at the table and getting texts from Marty Walsh, the labor secretary uh, in the United States. And then I just remember on, I think it was uh, the day before the day or St. Patrick's Day, and Marty's former mayor of Boston. And, uh, you know, after all the texting, now that we had a work stoppage, he called me and said, uh, Seamus, it's Marty and uh, calling from the White House. And your name is being mentioned a lot, not in a good way. That'll send a shiver down your spine. And you realize that, you know, rail lines in this in this continent, this continent are very intermingled. I mean, Canadian Pacific is now, I think, uh, Canadian Pacific, Kansas City. Um and uh, and CN, I mean, you know, they're running through all of NAFTA now. So when you have an issue, it affects everybody. Um, that is never lost on me. So making sure that you have stability, certainty and stability in our supply chains is hugely important. Making sure that that people stay at the table and that there are no work stoppages. Uh, in fact, Marty said to me, you know, if you can... If you can get this one off me, he said, I will make you the Grand Marshal of the Holy Oak St. Patrick's Day Parade, which is just outside of Boston. So we got ourselves that night and I called him and I said, Marty, you are now talking to the next Grand Marshal of the Holy Oak St. Patrick's Day Parade. Uh, and I saw him in Washington in December and he's like, ah, damn, they, 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 they choose these people too far ahead of time. And, Anyway, uh, so I'm, I, I might have to wait till next year. Regardless, I'm going to do the Boston uh, parade parade with him. He is now one of the most important people in Canada. 
he uh, left the position to become the president of the NHL Players Association. Uh, so he's promised me uh, very good seats anytime I need them anywhere in Canada or the United States. Um, he, you know, he, he taught me a very valuable lesson very early on, though, inadvertently. Uh, him and uh, our, our ambassador, uh, the U.S. ambassador in Canada, it's just the importance intercontinentally of of, uh, of our supply chains. So, I, you know, even, even most recently, two weeks ago, um, you know, in Toronto for about four days at a hotel near Pearson Airport with parties as the negotiated uh, WestJet. Uh, you know, we were a hair's breadth away from WestJet pilots going on strike on May long weekend, uh, work stoppage. And, uh, you know, anyway, we, we, we were able to walk away from that with a good deal for pilots. Um, you know, I, I, I seek out lasting deals. I seek out, uh, I don't want to use back to work legislation. I went in very early and told both parties it's not going to happen. You got all the resources you need to get this deal done at the table. And if you can get a deal done at the table, it lasts longer. It is more sustainable. People feel that they have ownership of it as opposed to the government just coming in and telling them, you know, we're going to legislate you back to work. So I'm looking, I'm always looking for stability and certainty, not only for unions, but for employers. I think that that's how you draw investment and that's how you grow an economy. We recently had uh, a colleague of yours, Minister Sean Fraser, the Minister of Awful Man, Awful Man, and Citizenship and Re Refugees on the podcast. We wanted to discuss the government's aggressive plan to accept uh, up to a half a million new immigrants annually for the next few years. Clearly, there's a strong motivation to do that with the aging population and workforce. Everybody, I think, is beginning to really understand that well. <clears throat> but I wondered, has your department develop the projection of Canada's labor force needs over the next decade or so, because I think that that's the missing piece for the population overall. They don't really understand the, the, the supply problem that we have. They, they hear about it, but it's not in the context with the numbers of immigrants coming into the, to the country. We spent a lot of time on immigration on this podcast. We're, we're, you know, big uh, supporters of immigration, but mm -hmm. you know, there's a piece there that's missing for the general public to link that reason a little more tightly. And I just wondered if, uh, if you've done a, a, an estimate of the, of the needs going, looking ahead. Um, you, you know, quantifying it is, uh, is an ongoing process. I mean, I don't have any numbers that I could throw you particularly. I would, first of all, like I would, take a step back uh, and say we are better at um, absorbing immigrant, new immigrants into this country better than I think anybody in the world. Um, you know, there's no political raucous. There's no, uh, you know, we, we are exceptionally good at this. Uh, you know, there are a whole, perhaps a whole bunch of reasons why we are, but we are. And I think we just have to we don't commend ourselves enough. We're too bloody Canadian, uh, but y you have to sometimes because, you know, sometimes we begin in such a dour place. We're very good at this. So let's take a look at why we're good at it and then just make things better. Um, uh, you know, first of all, we should be, you know, thankful people come here for a reason. We're one of the most sought after places to come in the world. But when then they come here, you know, we do offer the political stability. Uh, you know, Toronto, our biggest city, most people in Toronto aren't, weren't born in Canada. That's, a, that's unbelievable. Um, I think we're at a, we're at a major point though. And we, we, we don't want to get to a point where we exhaust people's, not exhaust people's patience, but it becomes irritable for people. Um, you know, it is exceptional that, you know, almost every, every party in the House of Commons is in favor of immigration. It's just a matter of, you know, how we go about it, but nobody's disputing the numbers, which is, that's extraordinary. That's quite uncommon. Um, I think what Sean, um, with his big brain is tackling is, you know, how do we use better systems, including artificial intelligence to, look at the people that we are drawing, maybe draw, you know, people from particular areas as well and stream them more quickly to the places where they can be the most fulfilled and where they can provide uh, the most productive role in the economy. Um, and, you know, he, he was astounded by how much continues to get done by paper and pen. Uh, he wants to kind of jump over that and, and, and start getting into AI. Um, so, uh, you know, we're getting there. I think a lot of it is just, again, I think it's just being smarter about it. Uh, hang on one second, guys. Are they here? 
Okay. Okay. Um, we'll have to clue up soon because I got the Equinor guys here soon. You, I don't mind you talking, mentioning that, but um, uh, it's an important appointment uh, with Beta Nor and all. Um, uh, so I think we just got to be smarter about it. I think also I'm incredibly happy uh, that more and more are choosing Atlantic Canada. Uh, you know, one of the earlier things that we did was was say, you know, okay, like we we had a problem where you know you'd have you'd have somebody come in, um, then they'd get their permanent residency card, uh, and then the fan then the family would be allowed to come in, and then they'd up and leave Halifax or Dartmouth or or Sydney or you know St. John's or and then they. And then they would, you know, move to Montreal, Toronto, 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 Calgary, Vancouver. So, you know, we started getting smarter about it and and bringing over prospective PRs with their spouse, generally their wife and kids. Get the spouse in work if he or she wants to work. Get the kids in school. And our retention rate went through the roof because because now you had two, you know, two people who had a job, who were happy, uh, and kids were in school, and so that's another reason. Just like anybody else, you're like uh, the kids are happy, they're in school. Do we want to move? Because the automatic tract was just to move to a larger center. And and now, you know, I mean, I look, uh, you know, we, our numbers are growing for the first time in far too long in Newfoundland. I'm thrilled about that. My God, you know, had the Halifax area is just booming, um, and and our, our cultures are richer for it. Uh, our economies will be richer for it. We'll all be richer for it. So, you know, we, we started th- that we set the ground for that very early on when Sean Fraser and I were just backbenchers. We, we got very aggressive, even as backbenchers about immigration and being smarter about it. It's beginning to bear fruit like anything else. We can be smarter about it. I think, you know, Sean is incredibly well equipped for the job, feels very passionately about it and uh, and plays the bagpipes on top of it all. It's just I, I can't stand overachievers. <laughs> We've got a limit of the number of time. We understand we have we have, we have a bunch more questions. We're going to make some selections here, but I do want to ask you uh, about your home province. We've mm-hmm. been w- watching the demographics and populations numbers mm-hmm. for most of our careers. Um, you know, Newfoundland has not returned to its population it had before the COD moratorium. No, it's it, it's starting it's starting to have some growth, but it's lagging the rest of the region significantly in the last mm-hmm. five years. As an example, population increased in Newfoundland less than one percent, while in PEI increased almost fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a huge difference. Part of that problem, in my view, is that the province came late to the immigration. Agreed. They were very late, very late to the immigration. But here's my, here's my question. Uh, You've but got to do now. better. But they're there now. No, I, I understand that, Seamus, but there, you know, there's a big there's a big catch-up gap that's happening. And you have the oldest population in the country. So that means more people will be leaving the workforce than any other place in Canada. So it's a it's a double whammy. So, you know, what's what's the plan? Do it now with the plan set. Uh, you know, I'm very happy to to to, to you know to say it is it is happening now. Uh, Premier Fury, is, it is perhaps his top uh, economic priority. Um, Andrew and I have been good friends for a long, long time. We are also very passionate about immigration. Um, I'm very proud of the fact, by the way, that, uh, you know, my, my grandfather came from Ireland um, uh, at a time when the Irish weren't very welcome in most places around the world. Uh, he came over as a refugee from the Anglo-Irish War and the Irish Civil War, and uh, he found a home here. Uh, I know Seamus O'Regan sounds like perhaps the most Newfoundland name you've ever heard. It a- is it actually completely Irish. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I feel very strongly about it. We've turned a corner on it now. I, I And Don, I read those reports and I read your articles about it. You're absolutely right. We relate to this. Um, uh, but it's happening now. Um, if anything, I get, uh, not that I would encourage you to follow the Twitter feed of the immigration minister for Newfoundland and Labrador, but you know, you get sometimes saucy tweets from him on our backs, trying to get us to do more, 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 more. I will take that. That is not a bad thing. Um, so, you know, they are willing to take as many as they can absorb. We are maxing out those numbers. Uh, I think, you know, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are very, you know, 
very welcoming people as it were but you you really have you got to embrace it you really have to embrace it in a fulsome way and they are now so uh it's it's just taking hold i would say in the past two years we've seen those numbers spike up um and that is going to be sustained uh because people here are serious about it and and we just you know we've seen like like other places just how much richer we are for it um and uh, so it's it's going to set and it's stable and we will catch up and i think that we're willing we've like i look at pei pi's done some extraordinary public public policy moves to to uh to get this right to retain people you know tying it to student loans and forgiveness of student loans and stuff and we, we learned from that we're not we're not you know we're not myopic we're very we're looking at that very keenly i gotta go pretty soon guys uh but go ahead fire away and then, then we'll have to clue up. I'm, I'm sorry about this. I'd say one last question then, Minister. Um, you, you've been talking passionately about your home province, and I think we'll end on that. So what makes you the most optimistic about the future of Newfoundland and Labrador? People. I think there are lots of places that are blessed with natural resources, but you've got to have the people. And, um, you know, I just uh, I talk myself into a job. That's what the prime minister keeps saying. Um, you know, and that's why I'm Minister of Labor. It, uh, uh, we have an incredible ability uh, to adapt. And I think some of that just comes from the pragmatism, the practicality of growing up on an island in the middle of the North Atlantic. Uh, I am lucky that I am, you know, we say the word Newfoundland and Labrador, the name of our province. I am an actual bona fide Newfoundlander and Labradorian. I grew up in both. Um, moved to Goose Bay, Labrador when I was 12, um, and and all the richer for it. It 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 you're, you're talking about people who don't see the world as it should be, or they wish it to be, or have an idealistic view. Uh, you, you got no choice, right? You gotta you gotta keep your eye on 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 the way the world is, because you know you gotta keep the wolves at bay. Um, and and so when things change, you change with them. Um, you know, the prime minister took note of the fact that the Newfoundland Offshore Industries Association, NOIA here, changed their name to Energy NL. You know, uh, they, they realized, okay, the world is changing. Lowering emissions and renewables are real. Let's embrace it. Let's invest. Let's showcase that. And they have. Um, you know, let's embrace hydrogen. We've got huge strengths on, 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 uh, on hydroelectric. Uh, let's build out. Let's do more. Um, you know, I'm hoping that we've cracked the nut on Muskrat Falls as far as affordability is concerned now uh, by using proceeds from Hibernia uh, on the rate mitigation deal that we got there, thanks to uh, thanks to some hard work over the past few years. Um, but that also gives us another source of good, clean electricity. Um, and and I'm just watching people adapt to all of it. I mean, you know, Argentia, Newfoundland come by chance i mean you have to understand every supper hour news growing up every year come by chance gone you know and it's and it's a refinery that looks like it's out of mad max uh you know it's from the smallwood era and john shaheen came up as the big investor from new york he he rented the queen mary filled it with champagne and then investors and they pulled up right next to come by chance and you know so it's from a, a very different time and it is going to be making you know recycled diesel and sustainable aviation fuel like for real like a huge investment. Our R87 million is a, so this is happening now. People are embracing it. And um, yeah, I'm proud of the people. And, um, you know, we have our setbacks uh, going in now. As I said, I got to leave this to go talk to Equinor about uh, their decision to suspend Beta Nor for up to three years. See what that means. Um, but I, I know there are so many things that are going right uh, that the rest is setback rest is negotiation. Um, we have really turned a corner in this province. I think we will, I think uh, my province can truly show the rest of the country and perhaps the world what it is to be an oil producing region and to change, uh, to build on the foundation that you have. Oil ain't going anywhere anytime soon. But those people who have built something, what ExxonMobil, biggest oil company in the world calls the harshest environment they operate in in the world, offshore Newfoundland, we do it here. And now we're flying off to Mongolia, Mozambique. Boy, show them how it's done too. It's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. So I got to go maybe talk about a little bit of the negative, but I'm, I'm sinking in positive. Thanks, Great. Minister. We really we really appreciate you coming on. You you have a lot of passion. You are a, a latter-day John Crosby. So thanks for coming <laughs> on the Insights Podcast and, and telling us about these important projects. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the interest. Thanks, Seamus. 
You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.